Kurt and Anthony on FM 96.3 and AM 620. WVMT. Welcome back to the Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here taking you up to 9 o'clock. And Brian Kilmeade. And joining us in studio now, it's Chittenden County Senator Tanya Vihovsky. Vihovsky, right? Vihovsky. Vihovsky. Super close, though. <laughs> I thought I had it, but darn it. It's a tough one. Vihovsky. You right. nailed it. All right. I got it now after she told me. There we go. How's it going? I know you just came back from a conference. Yes. That was a drug policy conference? Yeah, it was in Phoenix. And I've got to say the weather adjustment is a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's 100 degrees in Phoenix. <laughs> 100 degrees in Phoenix? And oh what, you got 40 God. here, so... Yeah, that's On a good day. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so anything come out of that of interest that you can share with us? Anything, uh, anything, any ideas there that were brought out? Any policy ideas? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was really looking at how we ground our drug policy response in the public health system and really looking at harm reduction and increasing ways of getting people into treatment and getting people the supports that they need. Um, you know, it was a uh, largely a nationwide con- conference, although there was some international input as well. We There was a really interesting panel about the 30 countries that have actually decriminalized drugs and really grounded their response in the public health system. There's actually one country that never criminalized drugs. So there's 31 countries in the world that utilize a model that's really much more grounded in public health. And their outcomes are pretty different than what we see. They've got much more positive outcomes. So it was really just great to talk to people around the country as to what they're seeing um, methods of making sure that drug supplies are safe and that people aren't dying. As you know, we're well on track to see yet another record um, breaking overdose death rate here in Vermont. And it's, um, it's, I mean, it's a crisis. We've really got to do something. And, and the crisis is also spilling out into our streets in the way of property crime and increased violence. And so really it's pretty clear we have to change what we're doing and, and respond differently. Did you hear any um, any particular? I'm, I'm interested in like communities, similar sized communities to uh, Burlington or rural communities because you represented Vermont. Um, any particular positive stories of of some things that they've tried that 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 you were like, hey, maybe that would work in Vermont or. Yeah, so that was a question that I asked in a couple different panels. There was a real overrepresentation of much more urban communities, sure. and so some of those questions that I was asking are the presenters were not sure how to answer them. But what I was able to do after the fact is connect one-on-one with people who were in in the crowd that weren't necessarily presenting about um, different aspects in rural communities, things like um, mobile drug checking and things like mobile um, overdose prevention. Um, and my hope is to follow up with them and continue really brainstorming. We've got someone from Duluth, mm-hmm. Minnesota, who really wants to do some work with us and has gotten a pretty big federal grant to do that work in Duluth, which has rural areas as yeah. well. But a lot of people similarly were like, there's a lot of model for urban response, but what do we do in a more rural state? And I had the same question, and I think we're still kind of figuring out and building that plane while we're flying it. Well, you know what I like is the fact that you're out there at least networking and finding people because it, it obviously, and the the majority of people are in the urban areas, but, but here we are, and to connect with somebody from Duluth, Minnesota, and communities like that, I, I think would uh, hopefully... Just the shared knowledge, you know, just 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 saying, hey, this worked, this didn't work. Here's what we're seeing, you know, um, because it's it is it is a crisis everywhere. There's no question about it. Uh, and um, I applaud the fact that you went out and you're trying to 
gather some information about it and bring it back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and as you may know, I'm a clinical social worker when I'm not in the Senate. So this is something that, you know, I'm dealing with in, in multiple different places, both in a policy standpoint, but also on the ground supporting people who are being impacted by this every day. And, and Tanya, so uh, is your view, though, that uh, I'm trying to remember, I know you were uh, in, think, thinking of your views in the Senate. Are you of the mind that one of the big answers. The bill we have right now would maintain a civil penalty that would be waived if people sought treatment. Um, but I do think that what we've seen around the world um, is that that is a response that shows better outcomes than what we're seeing here. So I am the lead sponsor on a bill that would decriminalize personal use amounts of drugs. But it would still like if it, so a, a dealer would be considered a criminal offense. But if, if but someone in possession, it would it would decriminalize someone that had a. A use, like you just said, personal use amount. Yes, that is what the bill would do. Okay. Do you think that there should be penalties at all for people who, like, for example, in Burlington, which, of course, is part of your... It well, is? No, yeah, that's right. It's part of your district. Uh, I just thinking about how the district was split up. You know, I was trying to... Yes. For, I mean, I'm going back to two years ago before the changes were made. <laughs> but Burlington is part of your district. So, um, and there's lots of problems in Burlington. We've got a mayoral race, and that's going to be front and center in the mayoral race, which is about... Um, not only dealers, but people that are shooting up in City Hall Park or all over Burlington. Needles are everywhere. Do you think there should be any penalties? Because it seems like we did have people testify at, at City Hall in a public forum saying people who had been addicts that said, look, I, until I was actually hit rock bottom and was arrested, that's when I made changes in my life. But do you think that there should be no actual penalties or consequences or, or arrests made? Um, I mean, the criminal justice system is really the very last place that people um, are getting good mental health care and substance use care. And so I don't know, you know, are there stories of where people for whom that worked for? Sure. But they're not the vast majority of story. I think what we really need to do for public use is make sure that people have a place where they can use that isn't in public, which is why I also support the um, overdose prevention center model that allows people to go in. Um, and be provided a medical facility in which to utilize what they're using, make sure they don't overdose, and also help them make dispose of, of their syringes. And, and I also, one of the things we talked a lot about with Vermont, the executive director of Vermont Cares, who's our, our largest syringe services program in Vermont, they also do aid service work, um, was really building community supports to help make sure that communities are cleaned up and, and that we are not seeing the same spill out into the streets because it is having an impact on everyone for sure. We just talked with Lieutenant Governor Dave Zuckerman about, uh, of course, the 14, the tragedy of the 14-year-old dying in Bristol yeah. with a 14-year-old kid shooting him in a car with a stolen gun. He is being tried, at least at this juncture, as an adult. Um, can you give us your thoughts on that and also the fact that when they were they were going to hold him, they finally relented and said, okay, we can't have him put in prison with adults. Uh, and we have, of course, we've had the closing of the Woodside uh, Juvenile Facility what should be your thoughts on that, but also what should be done? Are we going to build another juvenile facility? I mean, I think the intention is certainly to have a place where um, justice-involved youth can be given treatment and not held in the adult prison system. Certainly, the adult prison system is not a place for a 14-year-old. We know that. Um, and I'm glad to hear that the state's attorney was able to see that in, in the testimony about what that would look like. I think all too frequently, people who are in policy spaces don't actually know what what it looks like on the ground and so i'm really thankful for the addison county prosecutor that she heard the realities of what that would mean and and pivoted to make sure that this youth wasn't further traumatized and and further put into a system that is in all likelihood would lead to more criminality not less 
Um, and so I think I think we have to find a better response for our justice involved youth. We, we've we've heard from our state employees that are working with justice involved youth how unsafe what we're doing is now. You know, I don't know exactly what that looks like. And I know it's been really wrought with a lot of controversy and people who are not wanting that in their neighborhoods and you know i think we have to move away from from the idea that it can't be in our neighborhood and really look at a a treatment model that's grounded in trauma response because the reality of it is is youth who engage in things like that in in all likelihood of experience pretty significant trauma all right well let's go to the phones good morning you're live on the morning drive hey good morning uh when you're talking about um youth getting more criminalized by being uh by being incarcerated have you seen that kid's rap sheet i haven't i mean there's oh go ahead. nothing Sorry. is going nothing is going to turn him around he, he murdered a person albeit maybe on an accident but one family's 14 year old boy isn't coming home tonight and this kid is allowed to be in school where you can't guarantee he's not going to get a hold of another weapon it's certainly a tragedy, and I can't under... There's nothing to say to the family that lost their 14-year-old that is going to make that okay. And, you know, no, I haven't looked at this um, young person's previous history. Um, you know, this is a, a developing story. I, however, sit in a space where I don't believe anyone's irredeemable. I think with the right supports and services, anyone... I, I've seen humans make incredible transformation, and we know that brain development doesn't fully complete until someone is 26 years old. And so to say that a 14-year-old can't get the supports and services to heal and to transform and to be a functional and fully engaged member of our society just doesn't sit with what I know as a social worker that works largely with youth. Now, I have to follow up on that, what you just said, Tanya. Senator Vyhovsky, I want to say that once in a while just so I get it in my head. <laughs> Senator Vyhovsky, get the Nailed pronunciation it. right. Uh, but when you say no one is irredeemable, I mean, really, no one? I mean, I understand what you're saying, but like, let's use, for example, let's say the, the guy up in, in Maine, in Lewiston, that just tragically murdered 18 people. Now we know he's dead now, but let's say he hadn't killed himself and they had apprehended him. You would say that even he is not irredeemable? I would say that I do believe that even he has the possibility of of transformation. I've seen really incredible transformation. Now, I'm not going to say that that's not a person that has shown that at this point they can't safely be in society and that we need a way of separating them from society. But I do believe with a restorative system, anyone has the possibility of redeeming themselves. Is that always going to happen? No, but I do believe that that is possible with the right supports. I do, too, to be honest with you. I do think that, that people have an option. I, right. I guess I probably have to say I don't. I think nope. there are some people that are not. Well, I think are, you know, there's, there's a percentage of people that are. But, but I think, particularly when you're talking about youths, I, I think there needs to be a place where they can get help. And, but they need to protect to, for their own safety. There has to be a detention portion of it as well. And uh, it's, it's kind of hard right now in Vermont because we don't have Woodside, which was far from perfect. But we don't have anywhere. And, and so... Um, you know, hopefully we'll get something. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, you can join the conversation. Trip with Kurt and Anthony on FM 96.3 and AM 620 WVMT.
Welcome back to The Morning Drive, everybody. We are back, and we're talking with Chittenden County State Senator Tanya Bihovsky. And if you have a question for Senator Bihovsky, give us a call on the McKenzie Country Classic Hotline, 888-414-0303. Tanya, the legislative session is uh, not too far away now. It's about two months away. After we get through the holidays, you're back. And uh, what do you, when you get back, what do you see as the top, let's say, three priorities that will be your priorities and that you think will be others' priorities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think given the catastrophic flooding in July, we're going to see a lot of flood response um, grounded in our work, which will certainly, hopefully, look at how we, you know, build back more resilient given the increasing major weather issues that we're seeing. You know, I'm looking at really continuing our work on affordable housing. You know, for me on the Judiciary Committee, criminal justice reform is really important to me. Um, and I know that we're also really wanting to look at just making Vermont a, a more affordable place for people to thrive. And then, of course, you know what we've already been talking about, the opioid crisis is certainly going to be high on people's mind. Okay. And uh, anything, <clears throat> excuse me, anything that you're hearing from leadership in regards to uh, one of the first things you usually tackle is the budget adjustment. Anything big there that'll be coming out or or you haven't heard yet? Not that I've heard yet. Um. Do you think, uh, I know that obviously there was disappointment with some about the legislative pay increase. Um, it didn't make it to the finish line. The governor had vetoed it. Um, I think that Senator Baruth has said that there will be attempt to bring back a smaller version. Any Anything you're hearing on that, what the smaller version will be of it? I imagine that, um, as as people may know, I am vice chair of government operations, and that bill is in my committee, right. and I will be meeting with the chair next week to talk about what, what the session will look like. So, unfortunately, you got me a week too early for me to be able to really give you a <laughs> sense of, of where we're at on that. So, now is the time, Amy, first week of November. So, so the way, for, for folks listening, the, the, the process is, you know, you... The session starts in January, but, you know, being the vice chair, you're getting together with the chair now. And and so between now and the end of the year is when you kind of formulate what the plans are going to be and and, uh, and what the, where the focus is going to be on each committee. Absolutely. I mean, I really I know we don't go back till January, but I will say the last couple of weeks, it's felt like we are full steam ahead, you know, with meetings, with leadership meetings, with our individual committees. I'm also headed to Bennington to meet with the chair of my of the Judiciary Committee to sort of talk things through around our priorities there. That'll also be next week. So really, you know, November and December is when we spend a lot of time planning for the session because the session really, I mean, it's five months. There's not a lot you can really do in five months if you're not planning outside of that time. Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Hi, good morning. We're talking about some mental issues this morning. I was just curious. There's a stat out there that in 1955, the country had 161 million people, and we had 529,000 people committed in mental institutes. In 2022, we had 333 million people in this country, and we only had 39,000 people committed in mental institutes. It seems like we're out of control and we're going the wrong way on this. And and how many times do we have to see a group of defenseless people die before we before we realize being defenseless isn't the answer? Thank you. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what you're pointing to, those statistics, so in the 1960s, deinstitutionalization happened under the Kennedy administration. They really looked at the conditions within those mental health institutions, and they were deplorable. And so they were closed. Unfortunately, what didn't happen was that money wasn't reinvested in community mental health care. And so largely what happened is people who had previously been held in these really deplorable mental health institutions either ended up on the streets or were transitioned into our prison system. It's another statistic today. The U.S. prison system is the largest provider of mental health care in this country. And that is largely due to a lack of community investment in preventive supports and in mental health supports. And, you know, I I think it's dangerous to link mental health with violence because people with mental health issues are actually less likely to be violent than the general public, but they are much more likely to have violence committed on them, which isn't to say nobody with a mental health issue ever commits violence, but there's that, that correlation can be really challenging and problematic. It does seem, it does seem counterproductive to put people with mental health challenges with people that convict or commit crimes. Uh, Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Yes. Good morning. I have a question for the Senator. Um, I'm down here on Church Street, and this problem is really pervasive all over Vermont. It's retail theft. It's, um, it's out of control, and right now there's really no meaningful consequences for any of this, and people just walk into the store and, and take things, and nobody stops them. They fill bags full of clothing, and uh, with Walgreens closing, they were just clearing off the shelves and walking out with merchandise. There's just nothing um, that prevents people from from, uh, stealing. And I know there was an effort last year. It didn't go anywhere. I'm just hoping, uh, everybody's hoping down here on Church Street anyway, that uh, the retail theft law is straightened. straightened. So I'd like to to hear what the senator has to say about that. Senator, what do you think? Uh, Do the laws need to be strengthened in Montpelier? Should something happen? I mean, we've got a plague, basically. The businesses can't. Can't keep up with. I mean, I think supporting people to res- to restore what has been stolen, but I also think the retail theft is indicative of the economic, the dire economic space people are in. I think we would see a decrease in retail theft if we invested in livable wages and we invested in affordable housing, so people weren't pushed to the point where that's their only option to meet their needs. I, but you don't think there needs to be some change, though. I mean, you're talking. What you're talking about is something that's long time down the road, right? It's not going to solve the problem that we're facing now and the stores are facing right now. I don't know that criminalization is going to solve the problem either. Then you're taking someone who can't afford to meet their needs now and making their life even harder by making it harder for them to get a job, harder is for a, them to get housing. But this is a fairly new phenomenon. I mean, where there seems to be no consequences. So people are just saying, you know what? I can do it and I'm going to do it. And 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 to assume that everybody that's doing it are are in financial hardship, I think may be a little naive because most of the theft that that those people are experiencing, it's not it's not somebody going in and uh, grabbing a sweater because it's cold out. They're going in and they know uh, they know the limits and they go in every day and then they sell them. Uh, Anything further on that, Tanya? We can't get to another call because I have oh, a question I got to ask her. No. <laughs> No, and I don't want to say that I'm assuming that that is the case for everyone, but I do know that that what we saw through the COVID pandemic was an incredible increase in economic hardship, and I can't say that that we can't say that that's not linked to the increase in retail theft. Tanya, I'm, we're almost out of time. I apologize, but uh, the Republican Party Chair Paul Dame has put out statements asking for you and two other legislators to uh, say whether you want to continue to accept the support from Vermont Democratic Socialists over stuff they've said about the Israeli. Gaza conflict. Um, um, what do you, 
what do you say to in response to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my stance on the Israeli-Gaza conflict is that genocide is bad, and I don't think that that should be a controversial statement. And while the national statement from DSA, I think, could have been fine-tuned to be more clear that that was the point, I do still align as someone who believes in democracy and who believes in in more socialist values in terms of how we take care of our people, and therefore I will continue to accept that endorsement. So you, you continue. The answer is you do continue to accept the support of the Vermont Democratic Socialists. The national, the Democratic Socialists of America, yes. That's right. Sorry, you got the name. Okay. All right. All right. Thank Senator you. Tanya Vihovsky, uh, thanks for being on the morning drive today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Joan right. Shannon tomorrow. Tomorrow, Joan Shannon. It's Fluff and Stuff Friday, and you're only going to find the morning drive here on News Talk WVMT Burlington. From ABC News, I'm Brian Clark. The first group of foreign citizens allowed to leave Gaza Wednesday included some Americans, like Dr. Barbara Zind, a pediatrician from Colorado. She had been volunteering in Gaza, treating sick children when she was trapped. Fortunately, we had a driver who risked his life driving north to Gaza City. I mean, bombing was heavy in that.